Okay, well, we're in the final chapter of Daniel now, if you can believe that. There's only 12 chapters, but it's taken us a while. And that's okay, because we like to dig deep and get as much as we can, right? So verses 12, 1 through 4, we'll be looking at today. And that continues the narrative of the previous chapter, which, if you recall, the last portion concluded with the reign, the brief reign of the Antichrist in the last days. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 now from Daniel 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let's pray. Father God, there's a lot in these four verses. We ask you just to help us unpack them this morning, that you would send your Holy Spirit. We know that you're here already, but we pray specifically for that teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us insight and understanding regarding these verses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it begins, verse 1, at that time. What time is he speaking of? The time of the events that we looked at last week in chapter 11, verses 36 through 45, the tribulation. We were told that Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And so I suppose we can conclude from this and from other scriptures that Michael is the specific guardian of God's chosen people, the Jews. Daniel 10, 13, we previously read. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is the angel bringing the answer to Daniel's prayer, and he's telling Daniel, I was delayed by this king of Persia, not an earthly king, but a demonic entity, a principality, one of Satan's cohorts. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, to help this other angel, for I'd been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So Michael came to his assistance. Here in chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, at the end of time, the last days, Michael shall stand up. In the last days he will arise to defend the Jews, protecting and preserving the faithful remnant that is to be saved. Revelation 12, 6 through 9. Then the woman... And if you recall our studies in Revelation, you will remember that this woman is the nation of Israel. The woman fled into the wilderness. And this, according to our studies, would be in Jordan, in that natural rock fortress of Petra or Petra, where she has a place prepared by God. Jesus told them uh, in the Gospels that they would have to flee not to even take time to pack or anything, just move. 
They should feed her 1,260 days. This is the last half of the tribulation, three and a half years. And war broke out in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels, there he is again, fought with the dragon, Satan. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. We've learned in previous studies that even though Satan was cast out of heaven when he attempted to take God's place, he still had limited access, and he does up to this point in time. Remember that in Job, he came before the Lord. The Lord said, hey, Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? And that's when the whole trouble started for Job. So Satan was still able on some level to communicate with God, but not as he had been before. But halfway through the tribulation, he is going to be cast down to the earth. That tells us why the second half of the tribulation is called the Great Tribulation, and it will be the most horrendous time on earth in human history. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan is also called the prince of the power of the air. And we've been having increasing reports of unidentified flying objects, have we not? Here's my belief. It was imparted to me many years ago by the late, great Dr. Walter Martin. How many have heard of Walter Martin? Kingdom of the cults. He was the foremost expert on the cults and what the problems with their teachings and so forth. But Walter Martin... I don't remember if it's an entire book or just an article, but he discussed his understanding, which I agree with. You know, there have always been UFOs. It's just that we seem to be getting more and more reports. And finally, the government seems to be admitting that they have evidence. But what Walter Martin believed, and what I believe, is that they are interdimensional beings passing back and forth into our dimension. We know there are at least ten dimensions. We only see three-dimensionally. And whenever we read in the Bible about an angelic being having an encounter with a human being, that means that that angelic being is passed into a dimension that we are able to see. They're around all the time. We just can't see them. And when we read that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, we read about the descriptions of various angels in the scriptures. I absolutely believe that these so-called UFO sightings are either God's angels or Satan's angels, one or the other. There's no such things as aliens from outer space. There's no evidence, and we're able to see so far into the universe now that we realize there's even more than one universe. And yet, Scientists and different people continue to promote this idea that, oh yeah, we can't be the only ones here. Why not? Who created us? Can God create human beings on one planet and no place else if he wants to? Can he create the rest of the universe just to blow our minds? Which is what I think he did. 
Because there's no evidence, folks. If there are, fine, I don't care. But I don't think God would go to all the trouble to send his one and only son to planet Earth to die for the sins of the human race and then have to go do it all over again on other multiple planets. In fact, that in an essence, that's what the Mormons teach. And it's false doctrine. Walter Martin would have confirmed that. In fact, Walter Martin was the great-great-grandson of Brigham Young. It's true. It's true, and he exposed them big time. So, again, when we read this in Revelation 12, this is not the original casting out of Satan from heaven, but it's his final downcasting to the earth halfway through the tribulation where he will no longer be able to have any interaction with God and all of his efforts will be focused here on terra firma. Can you imagine how bad it's going to be? In fact, we'll get to this in a moment. Daniel says, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, guess who confirms this? Jesus, Matthew 24, 21. Again, this whole Matthew 24 chapter it's about the end times, the last days. His disciples had asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In Matthew 28, Jesus tells them, lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Jesus made it clear there would be an end to this present age. The age of man, if you will. The, the millennial kingdom will be the age of Jesus Christ, the real new age, okay? Matthew 24, 21, there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, the time he's speaking of, the end times, the same thing that Daniel's speaking about here in chapter 12, nor ever shall be. It's going to be worse than any other time in human history, the, the tribulation, particularly the last half, the Great Tribulation, and it's never going to get that bad again because Jesus is going to be on the throne. Meanwhile, the uh, technocrats, the progressives, the uh, scientists, so-called scientists, all of those involved in the information technology continuum, the uh, globalists, the New World Order people, all of them are leading the human race down the primrose path, believing that all of this is going to be our salvation, that we're going to move into a time of utopia, worldwide peace. Even though I uh, grew up on John Lennon and the Beatles and really liked their music, his song Imagine is... Uh, it's one of the most popular songs in history, but it's an atrocity. Imagine there's no countries. Imagine there's no heaven, so on and so forth. That song has become the anthem of the New Agers, the, the One World Order people, the New World Order. That's their anthem. No religion, no countries. Although there will be a religion, a one world religion, overseen by the Antichrist and the false prophet, which will be an amalgamation of all the different faiths. And the current pope, 
is right on board with that. To bring everybody together, the Muslims, the Catholics, the Hindus, the Buddhists, you name it, the liberal fake Christians, into a, oh, in fact, even, if I remember correctly, I can't believe this now that I'm saying it, but from what, I'm, from what I recall, Rick Warren was actually promoting Chrislam, which was amalgamation of Christianity and Islam. God forbid that we should proselytize. God forbid that we should convert anyone. And yet Jesus says in John chapter 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the only way to be born again is when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you and transforms you when you proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. Jesus, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Does that leave any wiggle room? Is there any other way to heaven? And yet we now live in a day and age, folks, when between 35 and 46 percent of people in Christian churches believe that there's more than one way to heaven. It's true. And about a third of them believe that Jesus sinned. If Jesus sinned, it's game over. You and I can't be saved because Jesus had to be the perfect sinless Lamb of God in order to become our sacrifice. If Jesus sinned, it's all over. Might as well hang it up. Jesus even said 2,000 years ago, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why would he ask that question? Because when he comes back, it's going to be very difficult to find any true believers left on this planet. Do you realize that? True believers. A true believer is one that believes the whole word of God from cover to cover. No questioning, no doubting. Every single cross T and dotted I. No alterations. No dilution. No pollution. Every single word. What did Jesus tell the devil when the devil was tempting him in the desert? Man shall, remember the devil said, hey, I know you're starving to death, Jesus. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Uh, since you're the son of God, why don't you turn that rock into a loaf of bread? Testing, one, two. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. For man does not live by bread alone, but by how many words that proceed out of the mouth of God? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that means every single, Paul said, every, all scripture is God-breathed. The scriptures were breathed into the human writers by the Spirit of God. They're not the words of men, they're the words of God. You either take it all or don't take any of it. Don't mess around with my God and his word. If you don't want it all, walk away. Take it all or take none. Please don't pollute it. Don't divert it or pervert it. In fact, in both the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, it says if you touch it, if you add to it or take away from it, you are cursed. There's a lot of cursed people walking around today, folks. 
Now, the good news be the worst time in human history never to be repeated again. I enjoy historical books, historical films. Watched a movie the other night about the uh, Nazi occupation of Norway. How the people rose up. But every time I watch one of these movies and I see the horrific torment and torture these people went through, and this kind of stuff's been going on down through human history. We've all probably seen them, movies about the Holocaust, Nazi Germany, earlier times in history, just as bad. Oppression. I saw one where they, uh, they didn't go too deeply into it, but they referenced the Spanish Inquisition, where people were tormented and tortured. The Jews in Spain, tortured and tormented to be forced to convert to Catholicism or burned at the stake as a witch if they refused. I mean, the history of the human race is pretty gnarly when you dig into it. The only real bright spot has been when true believers appeared. When true believers rose up and stood for God, stood for Jesus Christ. Not the fake believers. And sadly, so many people are down on God, down on Jesus, down on Christianity, because the only evidence they've ever seen is the fake kind. But the only bright spots on this planet have been when the people of God have flourished. And that's true of our nation. The very thing that made this nation great was the faith that we have or had in God. Alexis de Tocqueville, I've talked about him before, a French historian who came to America in the early 1800s to find out what made America great. You know what he said? It was the fiery pulpits. We don't want no fiery puppets around here. You got to mellow out. You got to chill out. You got to make them feel good, brother. That's not what made America great. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, He's the one who made America great. And the reason it's not so great anymore is because so many have forgotten him. Or they've remade him in their own image. You see, the Bible says we're created in God's image, right? Many people are worshiping the God that they've created in their own image. Big difference. Big difference. Okay, at that time, your people, who's now, this is Daniel the angel's talking to. Daniel's people are the Jews. Your people shall be delivered. I'm sorry about replacement theology, folks. Two-thirds of American churches embrace replacement theology, that God has finished with Israel. It's all over. He's done. Forget them. It's not what the Bible says. Your people shall be delivered. God's people, the Jews, will be restored to him at the end of the age. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This speaks of the brokenness, the repentance before God when the Jewish people finally realize and recognize at his return that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. 
It's not a tidal wave, but there are more Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus Christ every day. And that in itself is another indicator that we're in the last days because for the better part of 2,000 years, no Jew would have anything to do with Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Now we have Jews for Jesus, chosen people ministries, We've got all kinds of Jewish Christian ministries out there. And I visited some of the Messianic churches in Israel when we were there, my wife and I. Wonderful, wonderful fellowship. Jewish believers, Gentile believers worshiping together. It was really great. Not that they don't have their troubles there, but they're there and they are growing. Your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So here's the qualifier. The qualifying phrase is this. Everyone who is found written in the book. So it might be important to know what that book is. In Psalm 69, 28, David prayed to God, let them, his enemies, be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. David prays that his enemies would have no place in the register of the righteous. This is a metaphor for a registry of citizens that's talked about in Nehemiah 7, 5, like a census. Philippians 4, 3, Paul writes, I urge you also, true companion, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 3.5 He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Revelation 13.8 All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. On the one hand, I'm sorry, your name is not in this book of life. On the other hand, we have the record of your activities here on earth. There's more than one book. But the book of life is the most important one. If your name's not there, see you later. Revelation 21, 27, there shall by no means enter it. This is the new Jerusalem, by the way. Our eternal dwelling place with God. There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation twenty two nineteen. If anyone takes away from the words of the book, didn't we just talk about that? Of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Apart from the Bible, the most important book in existence... Here's a little um, discussion that I picked up on regarding the book of life. It says, what is the book of life? The book of life is a record written by God before the creation of the world, listing people who will live forever in the kingdom of heaven. The term appears in both Old Testament and New Testament. Christians who believe a person could lose their salvation 
point to the term blotted out in connection with the book of life. They cite Revelation 22:19, which refers to people who take away or add to the book of Revelation. It seems logical, however, that true believers would not try to take away or add to the Bible. Two requests for blotting out come from men. Moses in Exodus 32:32, David in Psalm 69:28. God denied Moses' request that his name be removed from the book. God was on the verge of wiping out the Israelites after their debacle with the uh, golden calf and all that stuff. They're whining and complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. God wanted to wipe them out and start over with just Moses, kind of like he did with Noah and his family after the flood. But Moses said, well, if that's the case, then just blot me out. God, of course, would not blot him out, and he also did not destroy the children of Israel. But he was tempted, if God could be tempted. The request of the psalmist, David, to blot out the names of the wicked, asked God to remove his ongoing sustenance from the living. So the way some interpret that psalm, the first one we read, it's not speaking about the book of life, it's speaking about taking away their sustenance, their ability to survive on planet Earth. But believers who hold to eternal security, once saved, always saved, say Revelation 3.5 shows that God never blots out a name from the book of life. Revelation 13.8 refers to these names being written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. They further argue that God who knows the future would never list a name in the book of life in the first place if it would have to be blotted out later. The book of life assures that God knows his true followers, keeps and protects them during their earthly journey, and brings them home to him in heaven when they die. So we do have a bit of a conundrum here. You've got your Arminianists, if you will, who believe you can lose your salvation. You've got your Calvinists who believe you can't. And I think Pastor Chuck's position always was. Therefore, my position is we are eternally secure in Christ. I've never met one backslidden Christian who ever felt secure. They're always insecure. They don't know if they're going to go to heaven or not. Why, why does that insecurity creep in? Because you know you're not walking in obedience to God. You're living in sin. You are backslidden. The only way to be secure and at peace is to stick with Jesus. And then you don't have to worry about your name being blotted out. But there's another alternate viewpoint, and it's just something to ponder. I think ultimately, it's like so many things in the Scriptures, we're given a certain amount of understanding, but the full understanding will not come till we see Him face to face. But we have to stand on the truth of God's Word. If you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, your name is in the book of life. Period. But I know there was one commentator, theologian, I forget who it was, but their viewpoint on this was that initially every human being is listed in the book. Anyone who's ever been born into this world, a creation of God. And then that those who reject God, reject Jesus Christ, are ultimately erased. Interesting proposition, interesting thought. Again, the bottom line is God promises if you 
Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you follow after him all the days of your life, your name is in the book. This is the book being referred to here in Daniel chapter 12. That was verse 1. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Many, or in one translation, uses the word multitudes of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This verse predicts the resurrection of the righteous dead of Old Testament times, as well as the righteous martyrs of the tribulation at the second coming of Christ. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Why do I distinguish those from us? Or maybe us. Because... Believers of the church age will already have been changed and raised at the rapture. The resurrection of the wicked does not occur at the same time, but after the millennium, interestingly enough, Revelation 20, verse 5. So the resurrections occur in various stages, both for the righteous and the wicked. Actually, just one for the wicked right at the end of the millennium. So some to everlasting life, God's people obviously, others to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, everybody gets resurrected, but the wicked will desperately wish they hadn't been because it'll be a resurrection unto eternal conscious, I've talked about this before, a conscious living death, a conscious state of existence but not an existence of joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost like believers will have, but an eternal existence of torment. All right, verse 3. Those who were wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The firmament or the heavens is another word for it. So those who were alive on the earth in the last days and diligently search the scriptures, will not be caught up in the worldwide deception. Jesus used the word deception three times in Matthew 24. The key mark of the last days, the end times, is worldwide deception. Do you see it all around you even now? A man thinks he's a woman, a woman thinks she's a man. Is that deception? Absolutely. From small children now all the way up into adults. And that's just one small example. The deception that a baby inside a mother's womb is not a separate entity with a life that deserves to be protected. A woman's right to choose. Is that a deception? Yeah. It is. It's not your body, ladies. I'm sorry. It's the baby's body who happens to be growing inside your body. I wonder what they would think if you took your dog or your cat and, a, and that was female dog or cat that was uh, expecting and aborted all those puppies or kittens. They'd probably put you in jail. That would be animal abuse. Really? But you can do it to a human baby, huh? Excuse me. That's deception. Standing up for the truth of God's word. Oh, that's hate speech. That's happening more and more. England, Canada, here. 
if you get up and talk about certain parts of Scripture where it references homosexuality, other sinful activities, then you'll be accused of spewing out hate speech, and you might even wind up in jail for that. Is that deception? Yes. You know, it tells us multiple times in both Proverbs and Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament or the heavens. Those who are wise are those who fear the Lord. Not afraid that he's going to send you to hell, but fear of the Lord is a respect. You're in awe of God. You respect him. You're amazed by him. You honor him. You love him. That's what it is to fear the Lord. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who turn many to righteousness. So those who stay rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word will in turn lead many others to faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one who imparts his righteousness to, those, to all who believe him. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What is it that brings glory to God? We were having a discussion back there in the back before the service. I'm somewhat reluctant to bring this up. I've tried to just kind of stay mute on the subject for quite a long time now because in the past, whenever I brought it up, people just get mad and leave the church. We were talking about tattoos. I don't believe if you have a tattoo, it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean you're not saved. But my take on it was this. And the, the others, you know, they weren't real excited about the idea of tattoos either. Because it draws attention to your flesh. But then I know the, the believers that get Bible verses tattooed on or a picture of Jesus or whatever. But you know what we're saying when we do that? That I can win somebody to Christ through my flesh? Really? I can save somebody with my flesh? I don't think so. So again, I'm not judging anyone. I don't care if you have them or not. But I'm trying to make a point here. We cannot win anybody to Christ with our own flesh. The overarching idea here is that believers will be beings of light who will shine like God and His Son forever. Exodus 34, 29. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. See, Moses had been in the presence of God up on Mount Sinai, remember? And what happened? He started glowing. He became radioactive. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. The Bible says God dwells in unapproachable light. If we were to be in the very presence of God the Father right now, we'd be incinerated. Now Moses never saw God's face, only his backside. And I guess you might say that Moses had special protection because that was, he was the only one to experience something like that. But in our glorified bodies, in our immortal bodies, we will be able to dwell in the very presence of God and it's not going to hurt us. But you know what's going to happen? We're going to be like Moses only forever and ever. We're going to glow. Matthew 17, 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, 
led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, the Mount of Transfiguration. His face, Jesus' face, shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of Jesus in all of his heavenly glory. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Our position in Christ is that we are already sons and daughters of the light. It hasn't been fully manifested yet, but it will be. Revelation 1.14. The Apostle John has his encounter with the glorified Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ to John the Apostle, the book of Revelation. His head, Jesus, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Revelation 21, 23, and 24. The city, New Jerusalem, again our eternal dwelling place, had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. So, no need of the light of lamp or sun, sun or moon, because God will be there present among us, radiating His light, and that's all the light we're going to need. Revelation 22, 5, there shall be no night there. There are some times when night can be kind of fun, I guess, and you've got the lights low and you light some candles in the house and you have some mood music or whatever, some worship music. But by and large, nighttime kind of has the connotation of scary, doesn't it? A lot of bad things happen in the dark. In fact, Jesus said that wicked men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. A lot of bad things happen at night. Weird noises. Did you hear that? Depending on how old your house is, it might be creaking and moaning and groaning. Find ourselves hearing things. So in terms of just being more at peace and carefree and so forth, daytime seems to be better. Plus, I've always said, now, I'm not quite as much this way as I used to be, although I am still a late-nighter. But I always said, I, I, I don't like sleeping. It's a waste of time. You can't do anything when you're sleeping. And so we won't have to worry about it. No night. We won't need any sleep. We'll be in perfect, immortal, eternal, glorified, incorruptible bodies. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, when Daniel says these things, that's what he's talking about. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, the heavens, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Another thing this tells us, folks, and I talk about this all the time too, we tend to try to bring everything about God, about Jesus, about the Scriptures, down to an earthly plane, when throughout the Scriptures, God is trying to always elevate us to a spiritual plane. All of the parables the, the thumbnail definition of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, you see. 
And so what does this tell us, what Daniel is saying here? What matters most to God? It's not the temporary things, the earthly things. What's going to cause us to shine like the stars forever and ever? Bringing many to Christ. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament or the heavens. So wisdom. The emphasis is not on earthly, worldly prosperity. Oh, that's another part of our conversation. Part was about tattoos, so I hope I didn't offend anybody. But the other part of that was the idea that we can win them over to Christ by proving that if you get saved, God will give you a lot of money. If that were true, most of the believers in the world might as well hang it up. Because the majority of believers in the world don't have a lot of money. Do you know that? I mean, we're a small part of this planet, 350 million people. And yet there's billions of Christians, theoretically. And most of them are dirt poor. A lot of them live in third world countries. Try to win them to Christ with that kind of a message. A prosperity gospel. Jesus commended the widow who put her last mite into the offering, not the rich guy that gave a, you know, symbolic donation. Because there's always going to be some heathen with a bigger house than you have. There's always going to be some heathen with a nicer car than you have. Right? Thinking we can win people to Christ in the flesh. Whether it's tattoos or money or what have you. What did they say? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. The power of God's word imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. Those who turn many to righteousness. That's those who stay rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. Verse 4. Last verse. However, one and a half pages to get through the last verse. <laughs> one and a quarter, maybe. You, Daniel. Okay, Daniel, this is how it's going to go down in the last days. But you, shut up the words. This is the last revelation you will receive. Your time is finished. Shut up the words and seal the book or the words of the scroll. And the word here in the Hebrew means to affix a seal, to authenticate a document and assure its integrity. A king or official would close it with an application of clay or wax. You've probably seen this depicted before. Stamped with an impression of his seal. The document then carried his authority and could not be altered without breaking the seal. Letters, 1 Kings 21.8. Land deeds, Jeremiah 32.10. Covenants. Nehemiah 10.1 and royal decrees, Esther 3.12, were all authenticated with seals. Seal the book until the time of the end. So I believe there's two meanings here. One, this is absolutely sealed, guaranteed, it will happen. But also, until the time of the end, I believe it means the full understanding of these prophecies be, will be withheld until the last days which we're now living in. We have a greater understanding now than any generation before us. How do we have that understanding here? A couple key things. 
Many shall run to and fro, or one translation says many will go here and there. The last days will be marked by a significant increase in the frequency, speed, and length of travel by human beings upon the earth. For 6,000 years of recorded history, which I believe is how long we've been here. I'm a young earther, excuse me. <laughs> Man's only means of travel on land was either by foot or by horseback or horse-drawn carriage. There were some exceptions, obviously. There were other beasts of burdens, donkey, camel, elephant, if you will. But basically, the horse was used... And as we can understand, this limited the distance one could travel, and this condition did not change for almost 6,000 years. Travel under these conditions was limited to an average of 1,000 miles per person per year. Take one trip to Denver or Phoenix, and you've driven 1,000 miles, there and back. 1,000 miles per year. At the turn of this century, the 20th century, we're already over into 21 now, Transportation aids such as the automobile, the diesel-powered locomotives, airplanes, and even rockets have increased the distance man can travel per year from 1,000 miles to 25,000 per person per year. That's the average again, 25,000. If you're a heavy traveler or a traveling salesman or work on the road or whatever, it can be much more than that. When we were traveling with our group all over the country doing Christian concerts, we were traveling more like 40,000 miles a year. Just to go back over a little bit of history, in 1519, Ferdinand Magellan set sail in September, completed the first voyage around the world three years later in 1522. So it took him three years sailing to circumnavigate the earth. 1890, so now we're talking... Almost 400 years later, Nellie Bly, an American newspaper reporter, completed a record trip around the world in 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes. Quite an improvement. One of the things that they believe resulted in the, the, the sinking of the Titanic, they were trying to set a new speed record for an ocean liner, and they were going too fast. And by the time they saw the iceberg, it was too late. 1924, two U.S. Army airplanes flew around the earth in 363 hours, 7 minutes. That's 15.1 days. So they flew around the earth in 15 days. They obviously had to stop and refuel and so forth. In 1933, nine years later, Wiley Post made the first solo flight around the world in 7 days, 18 hours, and 49 minutes. So he just cut it in half nine years later. 1949. Lucky Lady 2, a U.S. Air Force bomber, made the first non-stop flight around the world in 94 hours, 3.9 days, being refueled in flight four times. In 1962, John Glenn Jr., so here we are now, what, uh, 13 years later after Lucky Lady 2, John Glenn Jr., a U.S. astronaut, circled the Earth in one and a half hours. That's 12,000 miles in one and a half hours. Does this kind of sound like many shall run to and fro? Does this sound like a radical increase in travel? The distance as well as the speed? Now here's the other part of this. And knowledge shall increase, or many shall run to and fro, many will go here and there to increase knowledge. 
we're seeing just within the last half century people traveling all over the world from the U.S. to China to Russia, countries that you never thought would even interact with one another are all working together on joint scientific projects, artificial intelligence, DNA modification, engineering, vaccines. But another sign that we are in the last days is the rapid acceleration in the accumulation of knowledge. According to research studies, the total store of human knowledge is now doubling every eight years. The total, folks. Think about that. All the knowledge accumulated down through human history, it's now doubling every eight years. 80% of all the scientists who've ever lived are alive today. Sadly, unfortunately, in my opinion. Every minute they add 2,000 pages to man's scientific knowledge. Every minute, 2,000 pages. And the scientific material they produce every 24 hours would take one person five years to read. About a half million new books are published every year. When Apollo 13 was lost in space, computers worked out in an hour and a half a way to bring it back. It's reported that it would have taken a scientist working with pencil and paper over a million years to figure out how to perform the same feat. A computer did it an hour and a half. A scientist working with pencil and paper one million years. You think... Advanced computer technology, artificial intelligence, it's all out racing the human brain. The most basic building block of computer technology, the transistor, was invented at Bell Labs in 1948. How many of you had a transistor radio when you were a kid? Man, that thing went with me everywhere. I loved it. My little earbuds. In 1994, a computer chip could hold 3.5 one million transistors, 1994. Is that 28 years ago? More than twice as many as the previous year's model. By the end of the 20th century, a computer chip contained more than a billion transistors, from 3.1 million to over a billion. Computer technology, and you know this because Man, if you don't update your laptop or your desktop or whatever, right, they just become obsolete so quickly. Computer technology is doubling every 15 months. Folks, I would propose to you in closing, we are now without a doubt absolutely living in the time of Daniel 12. That which was sealed has been opened. Let's stand. As we go to the Lord in prayer, if you have a prayer request this morning, please raise your hand like to pray for you. And God, more importantly, God sees your hand. Father, first of all, we do want to thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, help us never forget we can't win anybody to Christ in the flesh. Lord, it's by your Holy Spirit. It's by the truth of your word. Lord, forgive us if at any time we have tried to rely upon our own abilities to win the lost. Lord, maybe we have failed because of that. We have not relied solely upon your Holy Spirit and your word to do the job. Lord, give us wisdom going forward. That was one of the things that Daniel talked about. Those who were wise. Lord, we want to be wise. You've given us wisdom. 
And it begins with fearing you, honoring you, respecting you. And that means that we will be obedient to you. If we truly fear you, if we truly love you, then we will obey you. Help us to walk in obedience, Father, and we ask you to use us for your glory. Use us to win the lost, Lord, that we might shine like the stars forever and ever. And Father God, I want to lift up all those who raised their hand this morning. Some have requests for healing from physical illness or injury. We ask that you graciously pour out your Spirit upon them and heal them, Lord. We know that no illness is too difficult for you and no illness is too insignificant for you. We lift them all up to you from the head cold to the allergies to the sinus infection, the respiratory infections, COVID-19, whatever it is, Father. Cancer, nothing is too difficult for you. We ask, Lord, that you would impart to us faith to be able to trust you and to believe you for that healing and faith to believe you and trust you even if we don't get healed. It's all up to you, Father. Our lives are in your hands. We totally yield ourselves over to you and submit to your will, but we do humbly, graciously ask for healing, for injuries, for illnesses, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray also for mental and emotional illnesses. Those can be just as deadly and devastating, if not more so. We pray, Lord, that you would heal the brokenhearted. Lord, you, were, you said you came to heal the brokenhearted, and we have many brokenhearted people in our world today. Some of them might be here right now. You know if they are brokenhearted, and you know why. We ask for healing. Body, soul, and spirit, mind, will, and emotions all yielded over to you. We pray for deliverance from anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, whatever it is, Lord. We submit it to you now. Ask your forgiveness for yielding ourselves over to these things and ask you to deliver us and heal us in Jesus' name. We pray, Father, for relationships that have been damaged or broken. We know the enemy comes to divide us, to kill, to steal, to destroy, but you've come that we might have life and life more abundantly, Lord. We want to reach out and take hold of that abundant life that you offer to us. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be instruments in your hands for healing, restoration, reconciliation. Lord, even if we don't perceive that we've done anything wrong, we can still be the ones to reach out and uh, institute reconciliation. We pray for healing in marriages, friendships, office relationships, neighborhood, whatever it might be. We ask to you to heal and restore those damaged and broken relationships. And finally, we pray for those struggling economically, Lord. It's hard to believe that in this prosperous nation we live in that so many are struggling, but we know that it's true. There have been a number of things that have happened to cause massive increases in the cost of living in our country. But we thank you that you're our provider, and we know that you will take care of us just as you promised. Again, impart to us faith to trust you, to not doubt, to not be thrown off our kilter by what we see with our physical eyes. Help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray, Lord, that as we work together as the body of Christ, that nobody would go with needs unmet. We ask for your gracious provision and that you'd encourage anyone here today that's struggling, give them hope, help them to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we do ask that you take care of your people as you have promised to do. And finally, we ask you to receive our offering of praise as Roy leads us in a closing song. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.